Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, nerds, and welcome to the Engadget Podcast. I am your host, Terrence O'Brien. I am also extraordinarily tired, but that is okay. Good morning, people. Good morning. To my right, managing editor, Dana Woolman. Hi, Terrence. Hi. Hey. Are you as uh, awake as I am? I am the wakest. You're the wakest? Wakest of the wake. <laughs> Sorry. I don't, well, I don't know what that means. I was clearly asleep when you said that. Yeah. Uh, Terrence, I think I figured out what your problem is, by the way. What's that? Uh, your cup is full of water and not coffee. Yeah. Water bad. Water is bad. I went over to get coffee and the the things were empty, the machine was broken, and I just went, ugh. I did just fine. Thanks, Obama. It's literally, it's literally <laughs> over there. By the way, that voice you hear is hey, Chris hi. Velasco, senior editor. Hey, guys. It's been a while since I've done this. It's true. I missed yeah. you. You have not been on in a while. We've missed you. You've been off in California playing with Google devices that haven't come out yet. Yes. Oh, and I want them, but I can't have them yet, which is just a source of tremendous frustration for me. But Terrence, you want one too, as a matter of fact. Like, I do. Let's lay our cards out on the table. I, I pre-ordered my Pixel XL. Um, it should. You're an XL man. I yes, I am clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're giving me like a serious bit of a, not not even side eye. It's just full on stink eye. I, I'm not I'm not stinking anything. There, <laughs> there were no thoughts up here. Basically, what resting we're bitch to say. face is what I gave you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All three of our brains are basically completely shut down. Is what you're saying, right? There's just nothing going. on. Well, we on can't be here. low energy. No. Very high energy. I am going to be moving around okay, yeah. and talking really excitedly. Just listen to me. I am amped. I am into this. But there's no brain activity. So there. a lot of sound, very little fury going on in there. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Well, that's <laughs> rare, but I'll, let's see how this goes. Yeah. Let's start, as we do every week, <laughs> with Flame Wars. You guys know how this works. We're going to debate the biggest news stories of the week. You get 20 seconds to make your opening arguments. I'll mm -hmm. allow a brief rebuttal, and then I'm going to pick a winner. Um... And I will preface this as I have been recently by reminding everyone that this is purely an intellectual exercise and is not necessarily reflective of our opinions. Um, and also, we are coming up soon on CE CES, and we'll be doing something on stage for the winner and loser of Flame Wars. I haven't figured out quite what. Oh, yet. first I'm hearing. Oh yeah. No, no. Oh really? Uh oh. We're gonna think, we're gonna do a thing. I think the reason I've avoided being on this show for so long is that my flame wars like win lose ratio is very good. Yeah. And if I don't ever do the show, I can't lose. That's fair. It's just fear. Yeah. Um. I actually don't have the standings in front of me, but I think at this point we're we're seeing some clear runaway winner and losers <laughs> on either end. Mm. Welcome to hell, fiasco. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah. Glad um, I wore my grandpa's sweater. Your shawl. My shawl. Yeah. yeah. 
I'm dressed. I'm dressed for comfort today. I actually kind of dig that sweater. I'm not gonna lie. It actually Pretty. also holds a lot of phones. A lot of, a lot of like phone. special. I've got phone like eight. I've got like eight. and Rolex Rolex watches. Oh yeah, that's on the inside. I don't talk yeah. about that. That's not legal. Yeah, it's different that's thing. Not, that's not okay. But you'll sell me one later. We'll, we'll blame worse. Yeah, let's, let's do the show, guys. Yeah, the podcast. Why we're here. Um, let's start with a little gadget love. Um, you know. Amazon released its Echo. It's one of these things that it's a Bluetooth speaker and it's got a <clears throat> virtual assistant thing called Alexa inside of it. And now there's this little guy, the Echo Dot, which is a less big speaker. And it's the second <laughs> generation Echo Dot, but now the price is pretty low. It's, it's, it's 50 bucks. Yeah. So, well, my question to you, Dana, is should I buy the Dot or should I spring for the full-sized Echo? Most people should really just get the dot. I think this is an example of early adopters getting screwed over by paying the price of a first-generation product. Now, you have the same technology that you'd find in the Echo, and it's the same concept, but it's in a smaller, cheaper form factor. Mr. Velasco? Those are fair points. I agree with those points. There are a couple things to remember. First off, it has a speaker. Speaker ain't great. I'm also hearing that the speaker, uh, Alexa, sort of has trouble hearing over the audio if you're using the dot just because there's less sort of uh, space between the microphone and the speaker. So that can be tricky. It is helpful if... Sorry. Wow. <laughs> is that how fast these things go? Yeah, 20 seconds. Wow, I've really not prepared for this thing well at all. Okay. Uh, Dana, do you have any rebuttal? Well, I didn't say that the dot was the best pick for everyone. There might be some people who need the Echo's microphone capabilities, but I think for a whole lot of people out there, the dot is going to do just fine. If I might add, I think the bigger point to be made here is that no one should buy any of these things yet until we know if Google Home sucks or not. <laughs> like, it's, it's going to be a couple more weeks. Like, Echo Dot starts shipping on October 20th. The Google Home, which is surprisingly impressive, like Assistant, I think we've played with in Allo a few times, is actually pretty good. And it does look like a Glade, like, home air freshener, which I just <laughs> infinitely appreciate. So everyone should wait. Part of what I'd say about Google Home is that it is, what we do know is that it seems a little less capable in terms of all the um, Internet of Things type standards and products that For it's compatible now, with. Be, if only because like Alexa and the Echo has had such a huge head start. But I think if, you, if you've used an Echo and like have just needed to know things, uh, Alexa is generally a little less good at that. Like you'll ask her a question and she'll be like, well, I couldn't find the answer for you. I'm just going to stop talking to you now. And I, that's going to be, at least in my like, limited experience with the Google Assistant and Google Home, that will be less of an issue. So you're moving the goalpost a little bit, though. I'm de- I, I got to win somehow. Not, not by the Echo, <laughs> but just don't buy the Dot. Just, just wait. Just wait, guys. That's all I'm saying. Says the guy who buys all the things. Well, yes, but I'm terrible. And you're not. Like, all of you are genuinely good people. You listeners, like, don't be me. Just wait. I've made so many bad decisions. This is true. We can, we can vouch for this. <laughs> um, I'm going to go with Dana on this one. Ooh. Just because. Damn, damn. At the end of the day, I got to say, I don't respect moving the goalpost, buddy. It's a weak move. You know what? When, you, when you're. <laughs> when, it's your unlucky shawl sweater. I, I, I guess I should take it off. Should I? No, no you can. No, it looks cozy. It. Okay. Yeah. All right. And it's fine, drafty. Fine. In fine. All right. I'll be comfortable as I fail at this next one. Too. Yeah. 
Well, I, I, th- I think this one um, will be a little bit easier of an argument for you to make. We'll see. Um, let's actually, we'll, we'll start with you this time. So, I don't think it's much of a secret to anybody who pays attention to tech news at this point that Twitter is in a bit of an identity crisis and a little bit of trouble um, in terms of finances and everything else. And there's this real sort of uh, war at this point over what Twitter is internally that's starting to kind of froth to the surface. Um, And Jack Dorsey recently took issue with the idea of Twitter being a social network and described it instead as the people's news network. Uh, Chris, your thoughts? I, I don't think there's a way to sort of separate that. I mean, if you're looking at it purely binarily, like news flies on Twitter, but people are definitely having normal conversations in the background. And I think if Jack Dorsey's position is that this is a purely sort of news service, then like look at Facebook and Reddit. Pew recently did a study that says more people get their news from both of those services than they do from Twitter. And that accounts for a larger swath of the U.S. population. In just under the butter, uh, buzzer. Jeez, I can't talk. That's how exhausted I am. This is great, guys. We're having a real good time. This is only going to get better as we go along. Uh, Dana? <laughs> right. So one thing I agree with Vion is that Twitter really is both a news source and a social network. I think for a lot of people who don't have nearly as many followers as um, we do, a lot of them are just those eggheads with only a few followers. And for them, the main value of Twitter is going to be following news accounts and getting their news there. They're not going to be spreading, sending as many um, personal updates there as on Facebook. It's pretty good. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Uh, do you have any brief rebuttals, Chris? I think for for the average Twitter user who it's fair to say, is none of us. Like, sure, they'll be using it as a source for things, for news. Twitter sort of encourages that in the onboarding process. So obviously, the focus inside the company is pretty clear. But I also think it's fair to say that you that people are having conversations, not always good ones. You, you'll see a lot of sort of debate and discord and a lot of weird stuff go on Twitter that yeah. doesn't, that simply I, isn't news. Yeah, I mean... It seems like a large part, you know... It's not news, it's a reaction to the news. Like, Twitter is basically a newswire plus a comment section, all in one. Well, I think a lot of it sort of depends on what your definition of news is. Like, sure, if if we publish a story or the New York Times publishes a story, sure, that has clear news value. But I think by virtue of where we are sort of as a culture, like, the line between personal like updates and things that are going on in your life and actual news like that barrier is sort of murkier than it's ever been. Is it? I think so, which is kind of frightening to me. <laughs> like I don't know if a celebrity like tweets a thing that sort of makes headlines. Uh, obviously that isn't going to be the case for everybody, but but I think it's precisely sort of famous or quasi-famous people in our case mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. can get away with those personal updates. I posted something about my marathon the other day. And that was a personal update, but I only did it knowing that there's a bunch of people out there crazy enough to follow me. I wouldn't do that if I were an egghead with four followers. I mean, I guess that's fair. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I still have this weird sense in my head of Twitter being um, more about the social interaction thing and less about the news um, consumption part. But I also think I the circles that I travel in tend to be slightly older and still use Twitter very much in that way. Like I follow a lot of people uh, and a lot of my friends 
are the kind of people who like literally all they do is trade memes and jokes on Twitter. Like yeah. that's just like it. And I mean, again, this is an intellectual exercise. I think one thing we actually all agree on is that for Jack Dorsey to describe his own product in such binary terms, um, does it doesn't it's not that helpful. Um, yeah. it's not that constructive or accurate. Even. Yeah, but like you got to figure like so. Basically, this was taken from an all hands like company memo that he sort of put out after all of the news. And that wasn't meant for us to see. Probably. Was not meant no. for the public to see. Uh, it also came out after all of the word of like people expressing interest in buying Twitter and then like that interest sort of cooling off pretty dramatically and pretty quickly. Like it was just a, hey guys, like we can do this kind of memo. And I think that's actually how the memo ended. Like, good job, we can do it, keep it up. Like it's very, very rah, rah. Like here's, here's something to hang your hat on. Let's, <laughs> let's go to work. And I mean, I'm arguing against myself now, but he, it's, when he says People's News Network, that does sound like the kind of thing he probably said to himself and was like, oh, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> that <laughs> that's good. a good catchphrase. I'm going to tell the team that. Um, Guys, I'm really smart. Yeah. Smart guy. Dana, I'm going to give this one to you, I think, again. Damn. Me? Sorry. I just argued against myself. I know you did, but you made a very convincing argument to begin with. Um, and I think there is validity to this idea that, you know, Twitter is now more of a news consumption tool in many ways, for at least for most people, or at least that's what they want to be, even if they're not succeeding. <laughs> um, and from one social network in the midst of an identity crisis to another, <laughs> let's move on to Facebook for our last uh, debate of the week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is, this is a tough one. Yeah. No easy answers. There are no easy answers here. So... A few, well, I guess not even a few months back. Was it a few months back? Yeah, it was a few months back. Uh, Facebook was accused of bias in the way it was promoting uh, trending stories and favoring liberal media sources over conservative ones. Um, we will put a link in the description for this so people can go back and read up on that if they hadn't. Um, there is some validity to that claim, to be fair. Um, Facebook's reaction to this, however, was not to try and adjust address the shortcomings in their curation process and uh, figure out how to tweak their that approach because it was primarily humans picking these stories and what was a purely algorithmic approach. Now the Facebook trending stories is kind of awash in bullshit and fake news stories. Um, and so the question for you guys is, should Facebook bring back the human curators even if it means they're going to have to face accusations of bias? Or is the f surfacing of fake news stories just the bitter pill they're going to have to swallow in order to avoid facing those accusations? And I think another question that we can ask is, um, let's say a fake news story is trending on Facebook. Is that Facebook's problem? Yeah, I think, I think that gets to the heart of it. So, so Dana, why don't you start? So um, I, I, it was not easy for me to pick a side on this issue. I'm going to argue that, um, just for the sake of argument, that Facebook does need human curators, if only because Facebook in the past has positioned itself as a media company. And it, it indeed has relationships with news outlets, just like Engadget, among many others. So if that's the role it's chosen to play, then Facebook needs to exercise more responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was – I know that seemed a little short. Um, no, I got a slow start. Yeah, you got a little bit of a slow start. Yeah. Uh, Chris, your rebuttal. I think, I mean, Facebook, I think, is undeniably a media company. I think one of the questions that they should consider is whether it should continue to look at itself as such. I 
and this is a very strange viewpoint that I've taken for myself, but I also, I, I kind of believe in Facebook as the mirror that we all need to see how flawed and, and toxic we can be. You, you ended that at like just, just the right moment. Yeah. Uh, Dana, do you have a rebuttal there? Um, or additional thoughts? Because it was, I, this is uh, argue very difficult to get all of that out in 20 seconds. I don't know if I understand V's, V's argument. So basically what I'm trying to say is I think if Facebook continues to look at itself as a media organization, uh, yes, obviously it needs a human touch. The reason why we don't like r let algorithms write our stories is because they will always lack the context necessary. Maybe, maybe they will get better at it, but for now, the human level of discretion is sort of what's needed, I think, to present both sides of a story sort of accurately and fairly. What I think is going on algorithmically is that, yes, it does sort of take into account mostly just like what is popular, and a lot of that is wrong, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that there is value in that wrongness too. You can look at those things and say, well, okay, is that true? It, it is not most of the time, but it sort of forces you to understand what other people are sort of thinking about. Because you feel superior when you realize that much of Facebook is talking about Mean Girls 12 years after it came out. Is that true? <laughs> is that a thing? There's a Mean Girls Day every, there's a certain day every October when it's Mean Girls Day. That's why. I think it's just important to get a reflection of the world at large because I'm certainly guilty of this. I'm sure you guys probably are too. We run in our circles yeah. and we get the news that we get and we make our determinations based off that. It's easy to lose sight of the world at large. And for better or worse, I think algorithmically, just based off of movement and traffic and action, it's kind of important to see what other people care about, even if it is wrong. You know, and I, I will say I care less about the trending box mm -hmm. because it's not that prominent. And I think a lot of people understand precisely what you're saying, that it is junk, the junk food of news. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people do get that. I don't want to underestimate people on that. Um, where I will take Facebook to task is it recently changed its algorithms so that fewer news stories show up in people's feeds, which hurts publications like Engadget, but also many of our competitors. So you'll see fewer Engadget stories in your feeds. Um, if Facebook is going to exercise that kind of power, um, at least favor stuff that is reputable or correct. Yeah. You know? So if you, what you're saying is if they're going to get into the business of surfacing these stories in the first place in what is arguably not a purely organic way, they do, they're do they basically accepting some responsibility it's, to curate it? It's, 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 I see Facebook sort of trying to play both sides. It's, yeah. it's exercising this power that has a huge effect on the bottom line for media companies. It, it, it really does have far-reaching effects both for our bottom line and for what people see. But then Facebook wants to step back and say, oh, but this is just uh, reflects what, what the people want. This is, this is the will of the people. The people want to read about um, John Candy's ghost. I don't know where I got that. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, wow, that just got really dark. Yeah, yeah it's but, weird. Um, it, it does seem like Facebook is willing to step back and um, make it a reflection of what the people want when it's convenient for them, but also yeah. exercise power over what people are seeing when it's convenient for them. So I think that is a super compelling argument, actually one that I had not thought of at all. Um, and man, Facebook can be kind of shitty, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm going to give this one to Chris. Um, 
Aww, I do. Th- that's so sweet. Yeah. Thanks, buddy. It's not a pity one, though. Just so you know. I, well, I tried to go reach over. I, was, like I thought that's what that was. And I couldn't I thought reach. The table was very far. It was a lot farther <laughs> than I thought it was. I went to go give you a little pat. I, I choose to believe it's because you believe in my argument and not just because you wanted to touch this sweet, sweet sweater. It is pretty sweet. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's good. It's nice. Um, it is because I believe in your argument. I think um, this is betraying my own personal biases, but I do believe 100% in this idea that we've built ourselves these little bubbles that we travel in and kind of surround ourselves with people who agree with us and forcefully breaking out of that and seeing the other side, even if it is, you know, this surfacing and trending of disgusting, toxic shit. Yeah. Not even just necessarily disgusting, toxic shit, but blatantly fake stuff is important because it's the sort of thing that makes you go, okay, so there's a whole portion of the population that is reading this and believes it to be true. And that's like, problematic, but understanding that that's problematic and understanding that that is something that people are reading is important for your perception and understanding of the world. This might be, a, to, to sort of piggyback off of your point, this might be just like another weird Velascoism. but I personally believe that if you're not like, if you don't sort of, sort of take in things in the world each day, and like if you're not at least a little bit scared by what's going on every day, like you're just not paying enough attention. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Now that we've gone in a, in a weird side yeah, direction. Yeah, I mean, like, Dana took things dark with John Candy's ghost. Yeah. I'm just, like, laying in the grave <laughs> on top of the coffin right now. Just shoveling dirt on top. <laughs> Man. This is what happens when you take people who haven't maybe had enough sleep. Yeah, who have <laughs> definitely not had enough sleep. Um, so let's move on to uh, our two big stories of the week in group chat. We're going to do a double dose of group chat this week because... Um, there's a story that at least personally I really wanted to talk about and I'm the host, so I get to decide these things. (laughs) (laughs) I'm using my executive power. Uh, but there was also a story that we simply could not avoid talking about, and that is the Galaxy Note 7. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chris, would you like to, uh, sort of give us a quick rundown of Yo, a too long didn't read version of the of the. Chris reviewed the phone for us. Yes, by the way, yes. for people out there. I did review the phone. I gave it one of the highest review scores we've ever given anything, which, in fairness, is kind of a bad look on me now. Uh, no, as, th- but most publications did review it very well. Yes, at first. I, and I don't think there's any way for any of us to have known that this was going to happen. Yeah, because well, like holy shit, like nobody. What is happening, guys? Who did anybody's review units burst into flames on no, them? It's, no, the timing was very convenient. Um, so basically, to give you guys a sense of what happened, if you have not been paying attention, the Galaxy Note came out, I believe, like mid-August. And to, to very positive reviews, a couple weeks later, we start seeing reports on social media that these things are sort of bursting into flames. They're not, they're not exploding. They're not going off like bombs, but they're definitely smoldering and cracking and, and sort of catching fire. And that was cause enough for concern that Samsung weighed for a long time. Uh, maybe not a long time, but what felt like a long time in the context of sort of stopping production and issuing a recall. This is around IFA time, which is late August, September. They finally get enough reports saying, okay, well, we have to do this. They issue the recall notice. They take a little more time than I think was prudent to work with U.S. regulatory bodies on getting Americans to get their phones back. That's fine. They took what what seemed like decisive action at the time and went for it. 
The problem is, I think the execution was a little hit or miss. They issued a couple software updates meant to cap the limit of power that you could charge these phones to, but one of them didn't make it to America. Maybe the other one didn't make it either. And without any real proof or convincing proof that that would address the core problem. Correct. So they've taken some small steps to sort of mitigate and help people out in the process. FedEx and UPS for a little while would not even touch these phones. Like they would not allow these devices into their transport networks to get them anywhere because they were concerned. And now Samsung has basically just cut off around the world all sales uh, and exchanges and production of this phone. It's functionally dead right now, which is frankly insane considering this was the device they were counting on for the latter half of 2016 to like help them kill it. Like the S7 and the S7 Edge were really great starts in early on in the year. This was going to be the device that just brought it all home in the holidays, and it's gone. And this is this really hurts them, right? I mean, this is it. Not only hurts their bottom line in that this is now one of their big flagship devices that's just not going to be sold mm-hmm. anymore. It's done. It's a waste in every sense of the yeah. word. It's environmentally wasteful. It's a waste for Samsung's profits. Yeah, I was going to say this is a very expensive fuck up at this point, yeah. right? Right. And there's no other way to describe exactly. it. Exactly. Early estimates put the cost of the recall at about a billion dollars. That has since ballooned to closer to two, maybe even a little over two billion. That's two billion US dollars, not even factoring the supposedly 17 billion in lost sales that Samsung is now staring at dead in the face because of all of this. Yeah, I, I, I'm just pulling up our, our coverage here, and it says that it looks like they're going to lose out on two point. Three four billion. That's what they're saying in their uh, just purely as a function in, of the recall itself. Yeah, something like that. Uh, this is from their earnings report. Um, the earnings report, by the way, strangely is, okay. Yeah, well, there's a lot. Here's so here's the thing: is the the earnings report is largely uh, pre Note Seven debacle, right? Um, what they're saying is expect a loss of two point three four billion in the next three month period. So, this could get a lot worse. Yeah. Um, I mean, and let's and let's talk about the the recycling thing a little bit. Mm-hmm. This this environmental stuff. Do you want to touch on that a bit, Dana? Yeah. So credit where it's due. Motherboard um, was really on top of this story. They spoke to some experts, and I mean, the bottom line is that um, electronic recycling is um, still a fairly nascent field, and there are certain components of the phone that can't be recycled. Mm-hmm. Um, rare earth materials, none the, uh, no less. Um, so it, it's all a waste. It's all a shame. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the sort of thing like we've seen, you know, photos and heard about these sort of like digital graveyards and stuff where like all of America's unused and tossed out electronics end up. Um, and there's probably going to need to be like just a dedicated dumping ground for all of the Galaxy Note 7s at this point. <laughs> it's going to be like the ET of cell phones. Except I don't think in 25 years people are going to dig these things up and take them home and turn them on. No, because in 25 years, wherever they've buried them, it probably will have burst into flames. <laughs> <laughs> just the entire place. It's just going to be a giant fire. Uh, oh, wow, that's grim. I mean, this has been a really dark yeah. show. I mean, you're all familiar with Centralia... Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, yeah, yeah. Is that, be, is that coal fire underground still burning? Is oh yeah, that, that is that is still well, a thing. There's going to be a town built on top of the Samsung Galaxy Note Seven graveyard one day, oh, and it's just going to all catch fire. And people are going to go there and take photos, and it's going to be a weird, morbid tourist attraction. 
It's going to be great. <laughs> what I really want to ask you guys is, like, yes, this has hurt Samsung financially, but it also has damaged their reputation. Oh, yeah. It's right? not done The level of trust that Samsung has worked, I think, really hard over the past few years to build. Like, there's a level of quality in their devices that they've aspired to and delivered on, and people have responded very well to that. Now there's a huge black mark on that record. Right. What, I mean, how do you think they bounce back from that? Like Terrence was saying that this is the holiday season that we're coming up on. Yeah. And people could, if they wanted a phone... By the Galaxy S7, it's not explosive. We gave that a great review. And we, to be fair and to be clear, we have not heard any reports of that exploding on people. There's been no reports of that just bursting in But flames. why should they buy that? That's it's that's going to be an enduring question. Right. Yeah. And even not. beyond that, why would you buy a Galaxy S8? Like, how could you ever be sure? I The impression that I'm getting right now, and the thing that is really most shocking to me, is that Samsung on some level, like, doesn't seem to really know what's wrong. Like, they issued replacement units, yeah. and those blew up too. So whatever they thought the underlying issue was, yep. was not it. Well, there was a, a report that came out yesterday, I want to say, basically that just said, like, Samsung's engineers can't recreate this problem. They haven't been able to figure it out at all. Yeah, it's right. it's... I, I, what the, <laughs> like, this is so mind-boggling, bogglingly, it's so mind-boggling, I can't even say the word. Yeah. Uh, like, the fact that this is happening is just so out of the blue and so unexpected for me that I'm having, honestly, kind of a hard time wrapping my head around it. Like, batteries are, I think, the most important component of a phone. Samsung mm -hmm. has made batteries for years that work fine. There, there must have been a changeover at some point. Like, these aren't runaway chemical reactions that they've, like, never seen before, right? Like, is that possible? I don't know. I, I mean, that's, that's the thing is we're still kind of learning about this, too. Like, this is, this is an ongoing story. This is far from done. We're going to be doing plenty more reporting on it. Like, I don't think any of us think that this is mm -hmm. anywhere near over. Oh, man. It's a real shame, too, because I still, I loved the guy. I, I, I love that phone. You uh, did. You gave it a... a Great score. It's it's perhaps my favorite Android phone of all time. And that seems I crazy still, to me. I still actually have my original Note Seven review unit. They've asked me to send it back. I've just I've been traveling and I haven't been able mm. to find like the parts, so I haven't sure, given it back sure. to them. Uh, you still have you still have an apartment, right? Yeah, okay. I plugged it in by the way recently <laughs> just just to see just to get a sense of like how lucky or you not am I. You are a crazy person. We do not endorse that. Yeah, well, if, so you, if you <laughs> have a Galaxy Note Seven, don't plug it in. Don't do that. Yeah, don't be. Uh, this is I think maybe the running theme of this show. People don't don't do what I do. No, it's all bad. You're you're a terrible role model. <laughs> that said, uh, I did plug it in, try to charge it for a while, and then just like refused to take a charge. So I'm like wondering Ooh. if this isn't gonna go south real quick if yeah, I try that might. again. So. Did you, leave it at, did you leave that at home today? Yeah, yeah okay. I did. I okay. did. Cannot stress this enough, people. I'm a bad person. You should not do what I do. Um, the other thing is, though, this leaves like a giant hole in the market. Like, this doesn't just hurt Samsung. It shakes up the whole Android ecosystem. Because, I mean, they were Samsung is the biggest maker of Android phones, right? Yeah, by volume, I believe. That's, I believe that's still true. Yeah. So and not many other Note type phones. Yeah. No, I mean Samsung built the Note niche like this weird gimmick. Into LG copied it briefly and doesn't. Yeah, I mean, everybody at that. this point has kind of copied it to an extent. Sure, but even I think Apple. What was really sort of special about the Note wasn't even really the Note stuff, which, as you've pointed out, other people have tried with varying levels of success. Like the Note, it's it's fine, it's cool. I what really sort of grabbed me about the Note Seven, and I think this is the case for a lot of other. Uh, sort of reviewers and critics and even just consumers too, is that it's it might be the first time Samsung has really built what feels like a seamless 
cohesive device. And that's, they're reaching, I, I, I would argue, sort of like Apple level, uh, an Apple sort of level of design and quality. And that just, I mean, that's, that's huge for Android and for Samsung. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of great smartphones out there. The HTC 10 is lovely. And a lot of people still really like the LG V20, which is coming out and actually really cool in its own way. But do any of them have the sort of star power that the Note 7 did? Not really, I would argue. So, so my one last question before we move on is, does this come at an opportune time for Google, though, with the Pixel and Pixel XL hitting the market? I mean, they're, they're going to take every advantage of this as they can. They, they're not going to be negative about it, obviously, because Samsung yeah. has been and remains an important Android partner. But, I mean, it's so easy now to, hey, to say, hey, that was a great big smartphone that you can't get anymore. Check out this sweet Pixel XL. And I think Google is at an advantage, not just because it, uh, critics have already said that its phones seem promising, but because Google is a brand that a lot of people know and yeah. respect. I would say that um, there's still an opportunity for underdog HTC if it can figure out how to promote its already really good phones. And then you have companies like um, OnePlus and Huawei that are lesser known, but doing good work, and I would say increasingly good work. So um, they're not going to sit still, and they're not going to not take advantage of this opportunity. No, I I expect everybody is probably going to. um, And also, we should be fair that... What is good for the Pixel and Pixel XL is good for HTC as well. The Pixel right now in the U.S. is, is also a Verizon exclusive unless you buy it. Unlocked. Unless you buy it. So for, there's, yeah. there's room for other players to yeah. get in there also. Although to be, it's, it's not hard to buy it unlocked and you can finance it and all that stuff. Which, yeah, you, you, know. you can also buy it unlocked and use it with Verizon just fine. So maybe do that. Yeah. Like that's the one piece of advice I'll throw yeah. out there that people should probably follow. Um. Yeah, I, I pre-ordered mine through Verizon. <laughs> I, I contemplated canceling my pre-order. I'm choosing at this point to take Verizon at their word when they say they're going to push out updates at the same time they go to the unlocked ones, that the handset will come unlocked anyway, and that it's not going to have any unremovable bloatware. Um, let's find out if our corporate overlords break their promise. Can't unlock that bootloader, though. Can't throw on some sweet, sweet ROMs, my dude. That's okay. I don't. Do that <laughs> okay. I haven't. I haven't done. I haven't installed a custom ROM on a phone since. I want to say maybe the Galaxy Nexus, but probably really? before that. I mean, like I, I may I'm generally in the same camp, and I think that's just a testament to how like a good manufacturer software has gotten. Like it's obviously not yeah. perfect, and I still will always prefer stock, but like. Man, it's it's so much less obtrusive and annoying and like suicide inducing. I think I think the Nexus actually the Galaxy Nexus was the last one I did a custom ROM on, if only because it was when they stopped supporting it. Did you have a Verizon Galaxy Nexus? Yes. Me too. And so I went that thing. and cracked the bootloader so that I could install <laughs> the most recent version of vanilla Android. Do you remember how late they got that thing too? Like Galaxy Nexus was announced in Hong Kong like September or something, and the Galaxy Nexus didn't hit Verizon until like December. Do, like yep. Wikipedia. I remember that it you, was December. I bought it for I bought it for myself for my birthday. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday to me! Where are all the, Where are these facts stored? I was like a Verizon. I very. I have a lot of like memories tied into that phone because, like, I got that phone in December as like a Christmas gift for me and another person involved in a failed relationship. So this was like, yeah, we're going to get a family plan. We're going to get some sweet Galaxy Nexi. We're going to throw on some like 
really sweet widgets and stuff and enjoy ice cream sandwich. And and just like that relationship fell apart, so did that phone. In, in Verizon size, anyway. So, hey, um, yeah. That's as good a place. That is more of an answer than I was expecting. I think that is as good a place to end that conversation as any. Unlike Thank you. Unlike this microphone, there is no filter in my head. <laughs> um. Let's move on to our last topic of the week uh, and our our second dose of group chat. Um, And this one is going to be a bit of a downer because I always like ending the show on a downer, guys. It's it's my personal thing. Well, this whole show has been kind of a downer. It's true. It's been kind of a... Which I appreciate because I I luxuriate (laughs) in like suffering. If you're looking for a tech podcast where you can come to feel bad about yourself and your life... And the world. This is it. And the world. Mm. The Engadget Podcast is the tech podcast for you. (laughs) (laughs) Really doing a great job of selling this. Um, So let's go back to Friday night last week. (laughs) The good old days. The good old, let's, the good old days. And let's just um, mention that there was a certain tape of a certain presidential candidate uh, bragging about certain things, those certain things being sexually assaulting women. Um, and this kind of sparked a whole um, movement on Twitter that started with Kelly Oxford, who is an author, who asked women to tweet at her about their first assaults. She said, uh, women, tweet me your first assaults. These aren't just, they're not just stats. I'll go first. Um, an old man on the city bus grabs my pussy, smiles at me. I'm 12. Now, there is a, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of responses to this um, that are worth reading. And then there were eventually a hashtag rose out of this, uh, hashtag not okay. Um, and we're going to address that one in specific in a minute. But I kind of wanted to address this bigger idea of hashtag activism in general. And especially because this past weekend and early this week was sort of a wash in these sorts of things. It wasn't just Kelly Oxford and sexual assaults and the not okay hashtag. Um, there was also World Mental Health Day, which was a hashtag going around in which people were sharing their experiences with therapy and dealing with mental illness. There was National Coming Out Day in which the LGBT community was sharing their stories about how they came out and coming together Um there's everyday sexism. Um, this is 2016, which is a little bit more of an obtuse one, but uh, was started by Michael Lau, um, who is from the New York Times, uh, which was asking Asian Americans to share their stories uh, of encountering racism in their lives. Um, and so I just kind of wanted to go back. I think, you know, this hashtag activism thing really kind of came to the fore, I want to say, during um, my mind is blanking. I'm having a really good day, guys. The Arab Spring? Yes, that is. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Dana, for being my backup there. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's when it really kind of came about, right? That's when it started getting first attention? I think, um, you know, it's hard to say exactly when, but that does feel like one of the earliest instances of us tech reporters talking about Twitter being used as um, a tool for social movements. 
Um, and there were there were other ones around uh, the Arab Spring that I can't quite remember off the top of my head. As you can tell, I'm clearly very prepared for this podcast. <laughs> um, but I think one of the things that struck me as interesting is you had all these sort of sorts of movements. You had the Arab Spring. You had a, a sort of flood of them in the aftermath of that. But very quickly, people kind of turned on the idea of hashtag activism as being um, not super effective. I mean, I, I sort of see where that criticism comes from. But I don't know, like the, the issues that often get brought up in these sorts of events, I, don't, I, I think there's a very sort of profound validity in just being able to talk about it. Like, yeah. you, sure, you might not always get the answers you're looking for, but it's sort of nice to have a space where hopefully you feel free and sort of independent and, and comfortable enough to just sort of air, air your grievances, to share your experiences. Um, I don't know. There's something very powerful about that to me, and that's, that is sort of what keeps me coming back to these platforms, even though I think in general a lot of the people on them can be kind of terrible. Yeah. I mean, I think the, a lot of the early criticism of it was based around the fact that, you know, they would say that tweeting a hashtag isn't doing anything. You should be going out into your community and organizing and doing these these other things and be an active participant and be part of the solution and not just like a passive observer. And I think uh, perhaps for certain movements, that's a fair criticism, you know. But I think it's starting to find its home now, it seems like. Um, you know, passing around hashtags to stop an oil pipeline probably isn't going to be super effective. Like, mm -hmm. go call your representative, send a letter to your congressperson, whatever. That's going to be more effective than just a hashtag. But what's different about these other ones uh, that we were just talking about, the not okay and the it's 20, this is 2016, is... It's less about, um, I think, actively trying to stop something and more about just creating a level of comfort and encouraging people to come forward and spread awareness about things. I think, uh, right. I, I think there were two big things going on this weekend, even, um, in the wake of the, the Trump tapes. So I think... And you can sort of see this in some of the uh, original headlines about the Trump tapes. They were... Um, a little reined in in terms of the language they used. They, they said they focused on the, the fact that Trump was being um, quote unquote lewd yeah, or lewd. vulgar, and it's and I think it, it took women and um, with the help of men. Men were really in solidarity here, but it mm -hmm. took women, I think, emphasizing their experiences to say no. This wasn't just that he he was being inappropriate or unpresidential. He was he was um, bragging about assault, and I think that got through to a lot of people who maybe wouldn't have perceived it that way, especially mm -hmm. given the pretty tame headlines that first ran when the story broke. And then you had men. Um, this was, I think, an example of hashtag activism too. Um, f uh, pushing back and and talking about what locker room talk means to them. Yeah. And that at times felt like a funny meme because um, I think there was some humor in there and, and you know, the, the ways men countered that. But I, I saw that as men in solidarity um, saying, no, what Trump did and said wasn't OK. And yes, um, that does um, um, that was um, assault. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so let's take it back to that that specific instance then. Uh for a little bit in the, the not okay hashtag and Kelly Oxford's request for people to tweet at her their assaults. Um, if you really want to ruin your day, 
and I do suggest that everybody ruin their day and do this, to be clear. Um, you should go read the responses to this because it's horrifying. Um, and, you know, I like to think that I'm a fairly enlightened guy as a general rule. Um, I've and I thought that I understood, but I clearly didn't like I didn't get it. Um, I definitely spent hours pouring through these things, including seeing responses from people who I consider friends, who I'm close with, and like seeing that uh, people describe being groped, molested, and assaulted, and often at a very young age, is, um, you know, I don't think it's the sort of thing that most men realize happens as often as it does. And I mean, even for me, again, a guy who th likes to think that he's fairly enlightened, it mm -hmm. was very eye-opening. I mean, I don't know. There's just there's a lot to take in, especially around these the, the Trump tapes. Um, I know it's very difficult for me because these are your friends, your yeah. colleagues, the people in your life. And to sort of see to get a sense of, of their life, to get a sense of what has shaped them in such a visceral way. Yeah. Like that. I think it speaks to my willingness and like desire to be a little scared by things every day mm -hmm. because there's there are, there are so many issues sort of at play in invisible ways that that seem more acceptable to talk about in the context of like hashtag activism than they were before like you're not going to sit down with your friend most likely and just have them pour your heart out but if they're if they're feeling a sense of anonymity or comfort because they're speaking to people sort of at a remove like you get insight into really important things mm -hmm. without even really looking for it. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, you know, it sounds sort of trite to say, but it speaks to the power of these mediums. It speaks to the power of Twitter uh, as a form of raising awareness for things and of kind of opening people's eyes to stuff. Uh, I don't know how much more there is to say about this, if I'm honest. Um, I mean, everybody should go read... Uh, Nicole Lee's piece. There will obviously be a link to it in the description of this. Um, it's short, sweet, but very good. Um, and she shares some stories of her own, which are fairly harrowing. And, you know, thank you for doing that, Nicole. Um, any final thoughts on this, Dana? Um, I have a thought. This is, and this may open a Pandora's box, and I don't even know how tech-related it is specifically. That's fine. But we, we, we're <laughs> I think one of the, the unique things about this situation was, so I think, and preface, not all men, but some men in, um, when they hear stories like this, I think are very quick to distance themselves and say, well, it's not me. I don't do this. Yeah. And we know that. Um, we know that. Um, but in this case, um, this was a rare case or a fairly uncommon case where it, wasn't a woman or women maligning Trump. It was Trump maligning other, making other men look bad in this tape that went viral. And I think the fact that it was Trump maligning his fellow men changed the conversation a bit and allowed men to not get so defensive, but um, join in solidarity in a way that I found really refreshing and helpful. Hmm. Chris? Really quickly, I just want to dig into something you mentioned earlier. There is a tendency for some people to look at sort of piling it on hashtags as sort of ineffectual and almost cowardly because yeah. you don't have the guts to sort of put yourself out there yep. in a more physical way. But 
I, I think that's really kind of an unfair way to look at it because maybe that's not for you, but the signal boost that you provide to the people you care about, maybe this provides them with the context necessary to make a decision that they wouldn't have otherwise made. Yeah. There's there's no real like you really can't discount the people around you and and sort of the effect that your opinion has on them and vice versa. So I, I I don't know. I don't think that jumping in and, and sharing these things is cowardly nope. or, or lazy in any way. Like it takes a specific kind of courage, and maybe it's not as deep rooted as the one that gets you out the door and holding up a sign at a rally. Yeah, but it's still important and it's still helpful. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I kind of hope that this puts that argument to rest because I've heard the same thing too. Mm. That you know, hashtag activism is for lazy and cowardly people, um, but. Go ahead and tell Kelly Oxford that she's cowardly for telling the world about when she was groped when she was 12. Yeah. Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's leave it on that. Yeah. Happening. Yeah, guys. Ooh. Good oh, show. Boy. Good show. Uh, <laughs> Dana, where can the fine people find you on the internet? You can find me at Dana Wallman at twitter.com. That's my full name, no space. Um, I promise I won't be tweeting about John Candy's ghost. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Chris? You can follow me on Twitter at Chris Velasco, C-H-R-I-S-V as in Victor, E-L-A-Z as in Zebra, C-O. I promise I just probably won't tweet at all. <laughs> That's a pretty fair promise. I like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find me at Terrence O'Brien. Lots of E's, no A's. Uh, this last segment of the show is probably a preview of what you can expect from my Twitter. Um, <laughs> it's it's going to be real dark, guys. Um, But as always, thank you for tuning in. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And uh, please send us your feedback, your comments, your concerns. You can find us uh, on Twitter at Engadget, or you can email us at uh, podcast at Engadget.com. Please subscribe to us in iTunes or your podcast app of choice. Rate us on there. Rating us helps other people find us, and we want more people to listen to us for obvious reasons. 